You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season hosts Lisa Greenwood, co-host Tim Sorens, and special guests explore spiritual formation. What is formation and what is the church's role in formation? Join our email, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and I'm back with my co-host for this season, Tim Sorens. Hey, Tim. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Tim, something you said early on in our prep for this season was that we're being formed all the time. What do you mean by that? Lisa, there's a, I'm pretty sure it was Stanley Harbaugh who basically made this point that formation isn't a Christian idea. Hmm. It's a human one. (sighs) Nice. So, all of us are always being formed, whether we like it or not. We are ingesting stories, we are participating in practices, we're in environments, sometimes that we don't even realize that we are. But to be human is to be formed. And perhaps the difference around discipleship or learning to practice in the ways of Jesus is that there is an intention around it. So, I think that's always helpful to say, actually, there's nothing particularly religious or Christian about formation, but we do have a particular narrative and truly a person for whom we're seeking to orient our lives around, and that is distinctive. So, I want to keep going on that a little bit and say, you know, if we're being formed all the time, and it's not a particularly Christian notion, but as you said, there is a particularity about the formation that happens for the church. One of the things that you and I have talked about is that it it feels like we've lost the thread, if you will, that the, the church has been more focused on activities and on fixing the church, frankly, than focused on our, our big why and, and particularly around formation. And you've written about that. So can you say more about this disconnect between what's happening in the church today and the role of formation. Yeah, like we have talked about a couple t- times the the big why I would propose of the church, the big purpose is to join in the dreams of God yeah, right yeah. where we are in our everyday lives. And that then begs a question of well what kind of people do we need to be and become that can join in that grand dream or you could say dreams. And they go together, right? I mean there's mm-hmm. like a a missional aspect of how do we roll up our sleeves and get busy in the work that God is already doing that we're joining. But as we do that, even doing it in and of itself is a formative task. So it's not just what do we do, it's how do we, who are we and who are we to become? And those two things are interdependent. So I think as for, for those of us that are seeking to be faithful disciples that are leading churches that are wrestling with how do we be the church Mm -hmm. in our everyday lives? What does the public witness look like? All these big questions. We have to be asking the questions, who are the people that we're seeking to become? What is required of us? And as we were just saying, if we don't ask those questions, if we're not very particular about it, about those practices and environments, et cetera, then we're probably just by nature of being human, we're going to take on the default formation that happens to be in our neighborhood or our city or our culture, broader culture, online. I mean, even through technology, like there's all kinds of things that are forming us. So I think that question is the doing and the being together Uh is the great question of formation. And yeah, I think it's, 
it's an incredible conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, I mean, that doing and being, those are individual questions, but they're also corporate questions. Yes. And the role of the church in in coming alongside that doing and being, that forming, that formation that needs to happen. And, and all these shifts that are happening in our culture that also affect the church and how we how we are living out what it means to be the church today. Um, you know, all of those things have an impact too. I think that does lead into our guest today because... <laughs> yeah. This conversation with Mark was incredible because he kept coming back in different ways, I think, to wrestling with the question, not just of the individual, but how do we form people towards a collective witness? What does that mean right now in the 21st century, not the 20th century? It was really interesting. How do we, you know, that the old conversation of metrics that we need to keep having is really critical. But what is the formative task in that? Just some incredible insights there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so before we get too far into that, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about Mark Demas, and um, he is a thought-leading writer and recognized champion of the multi-ethnic church movement. So Mark planted Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas in 2001, where he continues to serve as directional leader. And in 2004, he co-founded the Mosaics Global Network and today serves as its president and the convener of the event they hold every three years, also called Mosaics, this National Multi-Ethnic Church Conference. You can find links to the church and the Mosaics Conference in our show notes. So Mark has written several books, including his most recent, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, as well as a book called Disruption, Repurposing the Church to Redeem the Community, and his book, Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, which was a finalist for Christianity Today Book of the Year Award in 2008. Mark is dynamic and challenging and encouraging and a person of deep faith. And so I loved our conversation with Mark. Tim, what else stood out for you in, in our visit with Mark? Well, it was my first time getting to actually meet Mark, so it was just a joy to hear the font of wisdom from him and yeah, great. feel so much of the energy that he brings. I think listeners are going to love hearing from him. Well, the thing that probably stuck out the most, when we talked about how the task from his perspective of formation, particularly within the church, is that we actually have to create environments and lead people into tension mm-hmm. as opposed to away yes. from it. Yes. That has all kinds of implications and is, of course, quite the challenge, and he talks about that really beautifully. But I thought that was particularly insightful. Yeah. also loved how much he talked about the, the sort of communal task, the corporate task of the church and the corporate witness, the communal witness of what it means to be, be the church today. And, and in, a, in a just a, almost parenthetical remark, he mentions how um, in the U.S. we always think about the individual being formed, but there is a, a sort of communal formation that's happening as well and, and witness. And um, that feels important for us to notice. Yeah, and he said it in different ways, even like, you know, as you mentioned, he's written this book on church economics, even how we think about our broader economic systems and literally like the economic system of the church. How does that form us? How does it form us to be within uh, fellowship with lots of people that are quite different from us? That's really formative. So 
really was an incredible conversation. It, it really was. So can't wait for y'all to hear. Let me just say a quick word about sound quality. We had to do a pivot right before this uh, conversation with Mark uh, with some technology issues. And so uh, the sound is still good, but it may not be our usual sound quality. And so, but stick with it. It is an amazing conversation. Let's listen to our visit with Mark Damas. Hi, Mark. Thanks for being with us. You bet, Lisa. Tim, thanks so much for having me. So let's start at the beginning of Mosaic Church. I really want to hear you talk about what led you to start a multi-ethnic and economically diverse church at the heart of Central Arkansas, really. So give us a a bit of a brief overview of the 20-year history of Mosaic Church and, and where you are today. You bet. Well, it all began when I was born in San Francisco, 1961. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going that <laughs> far back. Uh, uh, yeah, no, but seriously, uh, I had come to Little Rock after 10 years of student ministry in various settings in the West, Western United States. I uh, came to a very large church, uh, 1993, very uh, well-known church at the time and even still today. Uh, 1993, 2,000 folks there, about 157 through 12th graders. I was brought to essentially revitalize, if not build a much more robust student ministry. Uh, It was a uh, a church there. So I came there in 93. That church grew from two to 5,000 people. My youth group from 150 to 600 in the next eight years. I went from one administrative assistant to nine full-time staff just through seventh through 12th grade. The senior pastor handed me a check, so to speak, for three and a half million, says go build a student center. I uh, built three full cores, 36-foot climbing wall. One day I went to him, I said, uh, hey, I think I need to hire another person on my staff. He said, no, you need three. And I got three people, right? So my point is I'm living the dream. You know, I got, I got 250 volunteers, nine full-time staff, 500 kids in small groups. I'm in this amazing church. It, it's not only locally impacting uh, the community, but also nationally and one day in 1997, which was happened to be the 40th anniversary of Little Rock Central High, second stop in the American Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. I looked around this otherwise amazing church and realized the only people of color were janitors. Mm. And that began to bother me. But I didn't know why in 1997 that began to bother me. But something about that didn't sit well. And of course, in Little Rock at the time, I'm going to say at least 42% of the population was African-American. So I realized I was in a large, white, homogeneous, suburban, upper-class Republican church. And I'd never thought about that in, in, in 14 or 15 years of ministry until that one morning that kind of dawned on me. And again, I didn't understand it at the time. And so I continued in that church for the next three or four years doing my student ministry thing. But on the side, I had a master's of exegetical theology at the time, now a D-min, a doctorate in that. And I started doing my own research, if you will, into the nature and and the, uh, of the New Testament church. Was the New Testament church, as I had been taught in seminary, Jewish believers went to Jewish churches, Gentile believers to Gentile churches, was it homogeneous in that sense, right? Was the way to plant, grow, and develop churches uh, in the United States uh, what Donald McGavern Minden called the homogeneous unit principle, right? Focus on a single people group, a demographic, if you will, and essentially give them everything you want. That's how people get saved. That's how the church grows. Was, in fact, did that match the, the church planning strategy, if you will, of the New Testament? My exegetical research, if you will, over the next few years realized, no, 
Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, all walked, worked, and worshiped God together as one in local churches in the New Testament. And this more than the explanation of the gospel, that demonstration of Christ being lifted up, able to draw all people into himself, is what propelled the gospel forward, that the homogeneous unit principle, as taught by Daniel McGavern, was an evangelistic discipleship strategy not ever intended to be what later became a church growth strategy. So once I realized this from a theological perspective, in other words, I didn't set out to plan a multi-ethnic church because of changing demographics or later because Barack Obama is biracial and somehow represents the changing complexion, if you will, of the United States. Uh, all that's well and good, but I needed to know for myself if what I was feeling in the, the check in my spirit matched or didn't match what was in the New Testament. In other words, the, it was the theology. It was the exegetical theology recognizing the kingdom of God on earth or is at hand is to be a reflection of Revelation 7-9 on earth as it is in heaven to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people, not just some. Once all that got into my belly then uh, in 2001, I left that church, not in a huff. I mean, I said goodbye, you know, three standing ovations. We all parted ways in a healthy way. But I determined to remain in Little Rock, come to the inner city, uh, an area, the 72204 zip code, uh, 66% of kids born without dads in the home, highest violent crime in the city, 30% at that time poverty, uh, at or below poverty, determined to uh, what Christianity today would call uh, three years later, a big dream in Little Rock. Could diverse men and women will themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one, again, to advance a credible gospel in increasingly diverse society. Uh, Christ taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And I began to ask myself, and I set out in 2001 to answer this question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? Hmm. And that led me again in the summer of 2001 to plant a mosaic church of central Arkansas, right here in the 72204 zip code, which now we've been in 22 years. But, you know, in church planning, you, you you conceive the child, then you give birth. So we just crossed 20 years earlier this year in 2022 uh, at Easter. So we're now over 20 years old as a church. Fabulous. Um, and I've, I've been in that space. And, uh, you know, for anyone who wants to learn about what it is to be in a community and to mirror the community and serve and be served by the community, I just encourage folks to to visit Mosaic Church and, and to experience it. I would love for you to talk a little bit about what it looks like today. And I, and I mean looks like, but I also mean what are those ministries? What's the texture? What is Mosaic Church today? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, uh, it, it's, it comes from kind of the formation of the church because when I left, so I, you know, I come out with this idealistic, very biblical dream, but I left the, the mega white, you know, whatever world you want to call it, Republican money. And I came to the inner city and very quickly we realized the more people that joined your church, it cost you money. Yeah. So you think about that, right? Like, like, in, in, in the suburbs, the more people join your church, you you make money, if you will, as people put tithes and offerings in. In the inner city, people don't put money into the plate. They take money out of the plate. And, <laughs> and I, so very quickly, we had kind of the slap on the face realization. Something is different about the nature of what it is we're trying to do. And it wasn't about money to sustain the church in its spiritual aspect. 
but the needs of the communities I just mentioned from crime to poverty to food insecurity now is a big term, right? There were so many needs in this community. And very quickly, our, our team at Planet's Church, we realized that tithes and offerings would not be enough to meet the bold challenges and needs in this community. We were going to have to develop multiple streams of income. And, and so with that in mind, what, what the church looks like today in terms of structure is it, it, think about an American football team, right? So an American football team is actually a team of teams. We don't typically think about it like that. But it's a team of teams, right? There's the offense, the defense, and the special teams. And each one of those are three separate teams playing synergistically together, hopefully, so that the macro team wins. Those teams are so different. They play different games. They have different coaches. We call them coordinators. They have different players who specialize in those games. So when the offense is on the field, the defense is not, uh, or special teams. And, and the metrics are different, right? When defense walks off the field, you don't say, how many points did you score? They'd say, that's not our job. Our job is to stop the other team from scoring points. And the, the games are so different that players, the coaches, the playbook, the metrics, and as we all know, you could have a great offensive performance, but if defense can't stop the run, you lose. Or you could have a great offense and defensive performance, but if the kick goes bad, the hold goes bad, the snap goes bad, in three seconds at the end of the game, special teams failed and the whole team loses. Now, what does that have to do with what we learned and how we set it out and how does it look like today? Structurally, again, we move from a single dimensional game. Let's call that a spiritual game. Evangelism, discipleship, etc. All the things, worship, small groups. Yes, we still play that game, but most churches in America, they only have an offense, if you will. They don't have a de- they don't have defense and they don't have special teams, right? And so we structured to, in a sense, create a spiritual playbook that was multi-ethnic, and that's the, the first leg of a three-legged stool. Then we created a separate 501c3 community development corporation nonprofit. It's an umbrella nonprofit under which we aggregated all our justice, compassion, and mercy work. And, and rather than have any of that under the spiritual team, if you will, the first leg of the stool, the church, we put all that work under a nonprofit. Why? Because then you can qualify for local, state, federal grants. Other churches will send you money. Other churches will send you people. But if all that's under the church, they won't. And or you won't be able to uh, to to get grants, donations, et cetera, from outside the church. And then the third leg was what we call church economics, setting up a profitable ROI operation to leverage the assets of the church, people, money, and facilities to generate true ROI. And uh, in terms of finance, then, the aggregate of tithes and offerings on your spiritual team Grants and donations on your social team, if you will, ROI, for-profit revenue on your financial team, the aggregate of that is what funds our work and allows us to be aggressive in meeting the bold challenges and the needs of this community, helping to reduce crime by 19% since we've been here, dropping the poverty rate from 30 to 22%, generating financial investment in this community of over $20 million to the point where the church wins a statewide award for economic development in the entire state of Arkansas. Now, that sounds like I'm patting myself on the back and I'm not. The principle is Matthew, the the biblical principle is Matthew 5.16. And we live in a Matthew 5.16 century. Jesus didn't say, let them hear your good words. He said, let them see your good works. 
And when we have, as we do, the largest food distribution in the city of Little Rock, immigration counseling, we've helped over 12,000 immigrants since 2005 at, uh, to help get their immigration status correct for literally $350 a case, not an hour. When you have an award-winning chess program for at-risk kids in the inner city, etc., these are the things, the good works that they see, and the church gets credit, which is at the end of the day glorifying the Lord. <laughs> right. This, this, and literally yesterday at food distribution, there's a a gentleman standing outside. He's smoking a cigarette. He's an older African American man, and and he came up to me and he said, "Thank you so much." for this church being here in this community and all that you do. And I, and this, this guy, I, I don't know if he was homeless, but he kind of looked like that, you know, an unsheltered person. It's, but you see what I'm saying? And that's to the glory of God. So structurally, that's the way it looks in terms of its complexion to use that. Yeah. There's about 25 to 30 nations. Remember little rock isn't like Portland or Seattle or LA. So you only have so much demographic diversity, but we have about 25 different nations in the church. Structurally, it's completely uh, multi-ethnic Acts 13, one, the, the leadership of the church at Antioch was diverse. So, you know, our, our elder chairman is Puerto Rican. Our senior pastor is Chinese. I mean, there's African American, black, white, Asian, all in responsible positions of authority that then informs the structures of the church and helps then make us not a perfect church by any means, but a generally healthy multi-ethnic church again, uh, to the glory of God. Mark, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to sort of double click on something that you just said in that when you were talking through the metaphors of the football team, essentially what you're talking about is how Mosaic has begun to think you could say about, and maybe I think you're comfortable with this language, maybe not all of our listeners will be, but reimagining the business model of the church, the capital C. That's part of what you've done. I have been thinking about this for a while, and I want to get your reaction. You tell me if I'm like way off, and I'm curious about your reflection, having been there, as you said, and congratulations for 20 years. That mm. really is, frankly, incredible. But uh, I, th- I think it was maybe Peter Drucker who said, you've, I'm sure most people have heard this quote, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Have you all heard this? Mm-hmm. Which I think is true and is like an interesting thing to talk about, but I want to take that a step further and get your reaction, particularly from your experience. I think it's possible that business models eventually eat culture for lunch, meaning increasingly I think that the business model of the church forms us corporately and individually in ways that we don't often talk about. And you just kind of did. You talked about the business model of the church. So I know that's kind of a, maybe a new idea. Feel free to push back on it and say, well, that's ridiculous. But you have pioneered some new ways of thinking about that you could say the business model of the church and how mm-hmm. it forms and shapes us, not just congregationally, but like our imagination as, as disciples of Christ. Could you like just play with that for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's such a great observation, Tim. At a macro level, you just say desperation leads to innovation, right? I mean, like, if you're in the inner city and you're desperate because people are ringing your door, we need food, we need shelter, we need pharmaceuticals, we're, you know, this person's on fentanyl. I mean, we're in a community, I was telling a, 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 the former head of Arkansas Energy earlier this morning, I mean, we've had three people die on our doorstep during the pandemic. Yesterday, one of our unsheltered guests 
was shot just literally probably one block from the church. Uh, unsheltered woman who we pay in our nonprofit to run our, our uh, food distribution, she found him dead. I mean, that's the environment we're in. And, and so again, I could have my, I could take my nice little paycheck ties and offerings and have my little hundred, 150 people. And I got a nice little house in the suburbs. But if we're going to be aggressive on that in the inner city, ties and offerings doesn't do it. So desperation led to innovation. Now, uh, a second thing I'd say is, and we were desperate for God, if you will, we were desperate to advance the cause of Christ by meeting the needs of this community. And that's the desperation I'm talking about, not desperate so I can get a paycheck. Okay, so number two, literally about three months ago, the only major grocery store anywhere close to this community shut down its operations. I won't name the national change. It starts with a K, so I don't, whatever, but <laughs> that's another story. But they shut down. And this goes back to your business model because they have a business model. This is my, this is what I believe. They have a business model and the company's out of Cincinnati. Now you're in the South and you're in and in other parts of this community, their business model works, but their business model is not adaptive to this community, to mm-hmm. this culture, if you will. And so they've been here for many years, but losing ground, losing ground, losing ground. And then if ultimately they leave, which throws us into a food desert, which we already got 22% poverty. And, and I'm like, you have to adapt your business model to this community. Because, you know, if you're playing the way you play in the suburbs here, yeah, it's not going to work. So how can you make your margins in a different way that will keep you here? One of the ways we have done that is by coming up with and and writing about and and doing here is benevolent ownership. You have to have people who own buildings and own land who aren't in it for top dollar. Okay? Because if you're in it for top dollar, you're going to charge top you know, the highest rates in terms of square footage pricing, you're going to lock people in for 10 years. You can adjust your services, your employees, your hours, but you can't change that mortgage payment or I'm sorry, that rent payment, what have you. And that's what puts pressure on small business. And then they pass that on to the community. That's why you're paying $7 for a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But if you have churches with our vast wealth, literally hundreds of billions of dollars of assets, I would suggest buried in the ground. That's another story right now. But if we turned on that economics engine and played benevolent owner, we can bring in these people because I'm not in it for top dollar. I already explained. I got ties and offerings. I got grants and donations. But we can't just give this stuff away for free. I don't need top dollar, but I'm not giving it away for free. That's called biblical stewardship. And and the point is then we can attract that type of business, lower the price for good and services that actually blesses the community and everybody wins. The church wins. The not, the business wins, the community wins, and, and that's flipping some of that stuff upside down. So that would be a second thing that I see in the inner city in terms of uh, business model, strategy, culture. Now, that's secular business. One final thing in terms of the church culture, like you're saying, same way, the uh, same way as in business, which I mentioned. If you come to the inner city and you think you're going to do business, you know, you, you, you got to listen, you got to learn, you got to adapt. Right from the very beginning, another metaphor we saw ourselves and realized quickly we were is we are Navy SEALs. Right? Mm-hmm. Think about the Navy SEALs. Say more. They they get some basic training, and it, I mean it's way more than basic. Trust me. But but let's say it like this: Think about the Air Force. You got fighter jets and Air Force carriers. Think about a carrier. It's got three thousand soldiers on it. You got to have the kitchen. You got to have cooks. 
think about the overhead of the Air Force. Think about the overhead of the Army and if it was business. Think about the overhead of the Navy SEALs. How do you accomplish mission? You, you say, here's the macro mission. Here's a rucksack, 200 pounds. They drop you in behind enemy lines and they say, good luck. Figure it out. You try to bring the Air Force into behind like a Navy. You can't win a war like that. So in a very similar sense for the American church, if you keep playing with a 20th century metric and you think everywhere you go, you can just drop your metric in to a culture, right? It's not going to work. And that's what happens. So then you have the white flight of society affects the white flight of the church because the church doesn't know how to be generally adaptive. Now, of course, I'm talking primarily about the white church, both mainline and evangelical. But of course, inner city pastors, largely African-American forever in this country, they long ago knew how to, figured out how to be adaptive. That's what gave rise to bivocational, et cetera, uh, community development corporations, because they realized just like me as a white guy, I'm white Italian Russian Jew, by the way, um, I came to the inner city, I learned all this stuff. And then I adapted the way African-American pastors have had to adapt for, you know, decades, if not longer, to actually have a thriving imprint on the community. Because if I transport white evangelicalism, and I shouldn't say white, but evangelism mainline, largely white, et cetera, as it's been historically and the money that's involved in the business model, yeah, that's not going to work. And you see this time and time again. I know you do, Tim. You've seen at least probably as well. You see churches with good, and they'll go into some place for seven years, and then they pull out. Five years, and they pull out. Or even from the beginning, they don't make it. Because they're going in with a certain strategy, business model, if you business will, like model, you said, right. mm-hmm. and, and, and they're not adaptive. They're not Navy SEALs. They're going with the Air Force, and it doesn't work. And so it's almost like that business model actually undermines the the, the strategy or the purpose there or the calling and and. Uh, it, it, and so then they're they're finding themselves having to go somewhere else because that business model isn't adaptive enough. And I, I want to go back to something you just mentioned briefly and skirted over, but it's this notion of 20th century metrics. So what do 21st century metrics look like? What are you finding and discovering? Yeah, Lisa, I love that question. I love thinking about it. And I've actually written about that uh, earlier. I see a book called Red Skies. In, in my chapter, it was a, a collaboration uh, Red Skies, Alan Hirsch, other people, Michael Beck, they're in this book. Uh, but in my chapter on economics, I put this in. So the premise of this thinking, and again, we talk about what are you measuring, what's your what's your dashboard, if you will. Uh, as I began to think about this stuff a couple of years ago, and, and you, you, you both know when you look around, right, numbers are going down, offerings are going down. So there's all of this, right? And you hear about the nuns and the duns, et cetera. Okay. I started realizing that most pastors in America, despite their best intentions, uh, despite all the activity that they, uh, you know, create, et cetera, all well-meaning, all good attention. At the end of the day, the effect essentially is they're just managing decline. Right. Yes. Most pastors mm-hmm. in America today, in my opinion, are only managing decline. They're not reinventing. They're not disrupting. They're not creating new escrows. They are simply stagnant, which ultimately means you're managing decline. So then I started asking myself, if I'm right about that, like if I'm right, uh, that's true. Why is that? Right. And so then I started thinking about an operating system. As we all know, if you're using an operating system from 2008 and you can go online, like pastors or or people listen to this, go online and, and, and write the question, what happens 
to you or your computer when you're using an old operating system. There's so many good metaphors in there. It goes slow. It, uh, it's more <laughs> likely to get bugs. You know, it, it's more, there's all these things. If you take that as a metaphor, that's the church. You, you've got to keep your operating system up to date for it to run well, right? So then my brain went from an operating system. I said, okay, if, if you need to upgrade the operating system of the church, what specifically does that mean? And that's what took me to 20th versus 21st century metrics. And I realized that most pastors are still chasing 20th century metrics, hmm. nearly a quarter, you know, 25 years into the hundred to the, the 21st century. And that's what it is. So then I started asking myself the question, what are those metrics? Right. So here's a few of them. I already alluded to one in the 20th century. The way people came to Christ was explanation. You brought Billy Graham to your city. He clearly explained the gospel. People got saved. Uh, you shared the four spiritual laws with somebody. Clear explanation. Of God, people got saved. You gave people Josh McDowell more than a carpenter. Evidence of demands a clear explanation of how this man found his way to Christ under faith. They got saved. 21st century, it's not an explanation century, it's a demonstration century. I've already alluded to it. No one is listening. Literally, latest research out of Barna 20, uh, that's all behind what's called the He Gets Us campaign, 86% of adults in the U.S. Uh, have a favorable view of Jesus. Do you know how many adults in the U.S. have a favorable view of the church? 11%. You know who, what other institution has an 11% favorability rating? The U.S. Congress. I was going to say Congress. If you say church, oh, you no. just said Congress. Another thing is deity versus humanity. 86% of adults have a favorable view of Jesus and believe he was good for society. He's a good, all this humanity stuff. But when you lead with the deity, oh, Jesus became God, instant tune out for 86% of America. So, so all that goes to the idea of the humanity of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the good works of Jesus. This is what you want to lead with in the 21st century, which I said earlier, it's a Matthew 5, 16th century. And we have to understand that. It's not that we're not going to explain, but you're going to have to get people beyond the humanity bridge before you talk about the deity bridge. You're going to have to do good works and meet the needs of a community before they're going to listen in the 21st century. Another one is size versus influence. In the 20th century, is chase size. I encourage pastors it's not about size, it's about influence. And the greater your diversity, again, assuming at a structural level, healthy diversity, the greater your influence as a city. When I left that large church, 5,000 bodies, but they're single demographic, white, Republican, suburban, professional class, tons of bodies get out on a Sunday morning, um, Sunday morning but they largely went into one or two slices of the 20 slice demographic pie of the city. Right. But if yeah. I got a hundred people and I got the barrio represented black, Hispanic, white, we go out into, you know, 13, 15 slices of that pie, which church has more influence. Okay. So it's not about size. It's about influence. The greater your diversity, the greater your influence, comfort versus tension in the 20th century. You make people feel comfortable at church in the 21st. You got to get people comfortable with tension. Right. Because that's where the unity is. And the, the, the picture of that to me is Jesus with his arms outstretched, dying on the cross, lifted up to draw all people himself. The Republicans are on the right arm and the Democrats are on the left. And you've got everything from, you know, rich, poor, black, white men, women, dare I say, sexuality holds everyone in tension. And that's where the unity is, and that's what we got to get people comfortable with in this. Obviously, homogeneity in the 20th century, 21st, multi-ethnicity, 20th century, tithes and offerings. 
covered everything. 21st, you're going to have to develop multiple streams of income. So those are just a few off the top of my head that goes to all the way back to we've got to upgrade the operating system. Specifically, it means you're going to have to change your metrics and in and, and the ways that I'm suggesting and many more, if you're going to be effective and viable and not just stable and survive, but actually sustainable and thrive. That's what we're trying. You know, that's essentially what we're talking about for the American church. Mark, that's so good. I think we can probably add uh, the link to that book in the show notes because like that T-chart of 20th century versus 21st century is like, it's fantastic. One thing that I really appreciate about you and this conversation right now, Mark, is that you seem to, tell me if I'm off here, you seem to have both in your own leadership and in how you're seeking to help lead in Mosaic and explore kind of framework for what's possible, as opposed to a what you could call like a defensive posture. I just heard a really fascinating lecture recently by the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who basically said that neurologically, like the human brain cannot do both at the same time. You cannot be in the mode of exploration and possibility, which is what I hear from you, as opposed to defense, kind of the declension narrative that you were referencing. You know, we're talking about formation. Maybe this is in part for you, but also for how you're leading. How do you invite people into a mode of exploration? What are the environments that you feel like are are most critical? Maybe even some of the language. You've been really great with some of the metaphors. I'd love to know how you're inviting people to kind of follow Jesus as they follow you in the mode of exploration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a deep and very good question, Tim. And while you're asking it, I'm writing down the thoughts that I have because I do think it goes to metaphor and language. Uh, when you talked about this dichotomy from, I, I don't remember quite how you said it because I was writing at the same time, but I heard what you said in the neurological and you can't do both at the same time. I started thinking about the theology of all that, right? The biblical mores in it. The more, you know, if you talk to me, everything is rooted theology. I'm always going to start with the Bible, not because I'm like a big champ. It's just who I am. I can't get away from that. And so I think about this, like, for instance, faith versus fear. So when we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you don't see, I mean, you know, the people in the Hall of Faith and Abraham, they leave your family, leave your country, leave everything. Where are we going? I'll show you when you get there. Verse 4, chapter 12, and so Abram left. You know, you contrast with the Moses who hesitates, but I can't do this. I'm not a good speaker or whatever, you know, to the point where God's like, would you just shut up and do what I'm telling you? You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so, and of course that there's so much of that, the faith versus the fear, which is that, you know, and leaning in from a theological standpoint to that love versus hate, right? So much of, of, of stewardship versus management the, on the economics, a little bit back to that, right? Most, the American church thinks stewardship, defines stewardship, I should say, as management. In other words, God gave us this building. Somebody knocked the hole in the wall. We've got to repair it because we got to take care of the assets God's given us. Um, we've got to accurately report the money that's come in. We've got to clearly communicate how we're spending the money. All of that is the language of management. Do I believe that's part of stewardship? Good story? Absolutely. But biblically, exegetically, that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> he said, hey, you give me five, here's your five, and I made you five. Here's your two, and I made you two. One guy sat on his asset, and that person is called a wicked, lazy steward. I mentioned earlier, I think the American church is literally sitting on scores 
if not billions of dollars of buried assets. It's it's a church that has two and a half million in the bank. Nobody's getting saved. The 65 people in the church, they're all proud of the money they got in the bank. Nobody's getting saved. The community's not being engaged. It's a church literally in my community. It's a tiny little church that's owned two acres of land for 25 years. The sign says future sanctuary. You Mm -hmm. can get a commercial developer, right? You see what I'm saying? Leverage the land you have. On and on I could go. So the point is management versus stewardship. And stewardship requires measured risk. Right. I'm just going to I'm going to take a measured risk. It's not you know, there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. So I think about uh, that in terms of language, the idea of stable. I mentioned this earlier, being stable versus uh, and surviving versus sustainable and thriving. And all of it is kind of what you're saying. I think it's in the psyche of so many pastors in America they're operating from more of a fear than a faith base. And they would say it's faith, but the action is some of the things we're talking about. It's management, it's fear, it's risk averse, not, you know, take a measured risk, if you will. And I, and all of that is not who Jesus is. <laughs> you know, like right. this guy took a great risk leaving heaven for, for earth, right? He, he, on and on you could talk. He exercised faith, not fear. Where's your faith? Right. And, and, and all that. So I, my answer, you know, response to him to what you said is always, it just starts. This is who Jesus is. And ultimately, this is who God is and who we're called to be. But beyond that, I think metaphors also are important, uh, like a metaphor that uh, I frequently use when I'm working with collective churches. Think about it. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, really said the kingdom of God is hand. What did he mean? I mean, clearly it's not the millennial reign. Clearly it's not world peace. None of that stuff's happened. But the word means it's it's near. It's right at your door. It's near. But what did he mean? Well, it's Revelation 7, 9, because that's what came next was the church. And the church, more specifically, the church of Acts at Antioch, not Acts 2, Acts 11. And, and the metaphor is we are called to be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of peace. Ambassadors live in embassies, right? So if you go to France you and you walk onto the U.S. embassy, you're, you are literally technically on U.S. land, U.S. soil. Right. Churches are to be the embassies filled with ambassadors who don't speak of their own accord, who don't act of their own. They speak for king and kingdom. And when you walk into the embassy, it should feel like the kingdom, which is Revelation 7, 9. When you speak, when you act, it should be the act of the ambassadors. Right. Uh, in terms of peace. So that's another metaphor where you're trying to both at an individual level, collective level, uh, and, and move people towards something beyond themselves. Something that is a, I think the book back in the day, right? Big, hairy, audacious goal. Or what Christianity say about our church, a big dream in Little Rock. It's a God-sized challenge, and you chase it knowing you'll never get there. Because it's just like corporate sanctification, uh, just you know, or, or individual sanctification even, where I'll never be holy and perfect in this life. But that's not an excuse for me to sit back and just manage what God's given me or just kind of play it safe. So for what it's worth, listening to you, I, 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 what you said, I'd love to go look at that in the brain research where you can't do both at the same time. But I think in our own humanity, in the fall, in our culture, and certainly when it comes to the church and pastors worried about cutting jobs and or losing their own, on and on, we're risk adverse, we're living in fear, we're managing decline, and we've got to stand on the faith and the stewardship aspects, the love, not the hate, and just go for it because that's what's going to work. You know, one other quick thing, and I know I'm talking fast because I love this conversation, but this is <laughs> Philippians 2. 
Christ emptied himself, right? So Paul says, since we're one in Christ and everything, don't think of your own personal interests, also the interests of others, make my joy complete. And then he says, let me give you an example of someone that did that, Jesus. He had power, position, and privilege, but he didn't grasp it. He didn't hold on to it for himself. He didn't come to be king of the hill. Remember that old game on the schoolyard? Right. The way you stay king of the hill is you push others down. He came to be king of the world, and that means you go down and push others up. And because he did that, his name was highly exalted, right? And all that instructs us that up is down in the kingdom of God. You know, the very thing you think you should do is probably not what you should do. It's, it's it, This dates me, but Jerry Seinfeld, it's bizarro world, right? It's upside down. So, no, I'm not going to give into the fear. I'm going to give into the fear. I'm not going to just manage what I've been given. I'm going to take a bold risk and try to steward this stuff. And on and on. And, 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 and I've got to consciously rooted in scripture, if you will, take my thoughts captive, right? To answer your question, if you will, because apart from that, the natural man, the, the trajectory of the church in this moment, it's all going to pull me to the pessimism. But I need the theology and the example of Christ and others in the Bible to force myself to take my thoughts captive and, and, and live this life with optimism. And knowing, even if I fail, I'd rather be optimistic and fail than pessimistic and live. Beautiful. Fabulous. <laughs> and I I just want to hold on to that little snippet of you talking about what it is to be sort of a servant, if you will, and a student of the gospel that then helps you not be in a defensive posture or a fearful posture, but actually helps expand your imagination for what's possible. We often talk about the brain research that when we're struggling with something or we're asking, you know, we're wondering about things that when we're given an answer, our brain actually goes into neutral. But when someone asks us a question, our our neurons are on fire, right? They're they're then thinking and intrigued. And it's some of what you're saying, like when we, the church, think we have all the answers or are fearful about what those answers might be, then we we shut down or we stop actually being what the church is called to be. But when we um, really listen to the questions that Jesus was asking of us and we open our mind to what the Holy Spirit is doing, then we're energized for the gospel and we're leaning into that. And anyway, that, that's my own language I'm putting. So I'm not trying to put words in your in your mouth, but um, but I'm hearing such resonance with what you're we're talking about, which makes all the difference. It goes back even to the folks that you were talking about coming into inner city and not being adaptive, right? If we can't be adaptive, then the next thing you know, five, seven years, they're pulling out of the inner city because they don't have an imagination for what's possible and they're not um, adapting to what is. I'm going to pivot us a little bit as we draw to a, a close because um, we've been asking our guests during this season um, the same question. So I want to be sure we have time to ask you this question. And, and let me back up a minute and say, one of the premises of this whole season has been that we're always being formed, that we're always being formed. And 
we come in with the bias and the assumption that the church has a role in that formation. And that really, though the call of the church maybe isn't changing, the the cultural realities in which the church finds itself is challenging the church to perhaps change the ways that we do formation and the and the particular role that we play. Just think about the things you said about 21st century, 20th century metrics, which made sense in the 20th century, and 21st century metrics, which is which is a new way of understanding how we we do church. So if we think about the ways that we're being formed all the time. Our question to you is, what is one way that you're being formed right now? And what difference is it making for you? That is so good. And I, I, I will answer it. I want to answer it. But even in the asking of the question, it, it brings up a couple other things that, are, that I think are really important to this discussion. So one of those was, remember we talked earlier about strategies and being adaptive and coming to the inner city. And, and you yeah. just mentioned how it, it, we talked about it. it doesn't work. And eventually you leave and you get discouraged. Hey, we tried that. What I would say to that, the, the other thing that is not true is people don't have the passion in their belly, mm-hmm. right? The passion in their belly, a calling from God that you've committed yourself to in prayer. That means you will be patient and persistent until it happens. Mm-hmm. So in other words, people come in and think something's going to happen in three years. It takes you seven to 10 years just to go from survival to stability. Yeah. And another yeah, seven, yeah. 10 years to go from survival. So people, they don't, they don't have the patience and persistence because they don't have the passion. Yeah. And the passion means God has asked me to do something. I'm going to commit to do that. That's what prayer is. And then I'm going to do it until it's done. And I got to play the long game and people in America today and particularly in the church. And for a variety of reasons, they don't play the long game. They're looking for mm-hmm. quick results get discouraged, pull out on a variety front. So that's not good. The second thing that we're leading to my answer is uh, it'll be, it's interesting, but in this idea of formation, you mentioned a couple of times, we're always being formed. You know, what made me think Lisa is that none of us, everybody listening to this, the three of us here, we, we have zero problem thinking, yeah, I'm always being shaped. I'm being formed, whatever. But when it comes to the collective church, isn't it funny that the same people that would say, I'm, I'm being formed. What's God doing in my life right now? They don't think there's a new imagination for the church. Hmm. Okay. And I'm going to tell you what I mean. And you, so again, setting up my answer, the men of Issachar, and actually it goes on to say the families were involved. So it really is not a, just a gender neutral. It literally says families too. But the people of Issachar understood their moment and knew what was right to do. It means that there were thoughtful people recognizing that this is a moment unlike the past, unlike the future, and they determined what is the best course of action in this moment for the for the nation of Israel. And we don't have that at the moment because, again, 20th century, whatever. So if I understand I got to be thoughtful this moment, what's the best course of action? It leads to not only my formation and the things that I would look to for me, but also the ongoing, use the word imagination or reformation, if you will, reforming the church over and over and over again. Now, again, individually, we don't have a problem thinking about that, but I think I dare say most pastors aren't thinking like that for their churches. So what do I mean? There is an old line. I'm old enough to know I'm finishing 40 years of full-time ministry now. I'm 61 years old. And the, the line I learned at an early age in terms of ministry, 21 years old, is the churches to inform culture not the culture informed the church, right? 
And I'm sure everybody's listening heard that word. And at the root of that is form, right? Or you're using the word, what's forming you? What's wrong? Culture is not to form, inform the church. It's the church is to inform culture. And I used to think that. And yes, I believe that. In other words, if, if the culture says this is the way it's got to be, oh, I better do it that way because that's what it said. Of, of course, I understand that. Like a law is passed or whatever, okay? Maybe it's contradictory. About but on the other hand, culture is always informing the church. And it should be forming the church. And here's what I mean. In the 60s, 50s and 60s, uh, and when I came to Christ late 70s and then in the 80s, uh, in a lot of spaces, if you were divorced, you couldn't do a thing. You couldn't preach. You couldn't be on a board. You were, you you know, it's like the old scarlet letter. You got a D on your head and you couldn't do anything. But then, and I don't remember the exact date, but I'm going to say in the 50s and 60s, what happened? No fault divorce. It used to be a long, lengthy process. You go to court, you have to make your case, you get a divorce. Then it was like 30 days, boom, you're done. And what was happening in the culture affected the church because now you got a bunch of Christians getting divorced and churches growing in the 80s and 90s that need bodies and volunteers and all that. And it forced this, opened the floodgates of divorce in American society, which also affected Christians. It forced the church to think deeper about their doctrine and practice related to people that are divorced. The same thing is happening on LGBTQ. Culture, I don't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, oh, you know, a gay marriage is the law of the land, so every church performs gay marriage. That would be kind of the old school, right? Culture informs the church. Yeah, we've got to be more thoughtful than that. But on the other hand, with, with the LGBTQ community as it has since the 60s and let's just say coming out of the closet, whatever word you want to use, the, the, that is, it's forced us to think deeply because I'll just take a little vulnerable risk here. When I was a youth pastor, 1981, 82, I know, or 84, I should say, I know I said this because I heard it. And this is just before AIDS. So people were getting sick and no one knew what it was. And I know that I said on more than one occasion, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And everybody would chuckle. And it instantly, that was the depth of um, the thought of the American church related to gay people. But of course, now we, we, you imagine if I said that, you know, today, right? It shows a very shallow way of thinking, and, and the culture has forced us as a church, as it should, to think deeper about the Imago Dei and about people and formation and, and all that. And it doesn't mean we check our exegesis if you're a grammatical story and out the door, but even my exegesis commands me to love all people unconditionally. So how do, again, we're back to tension on uh, if you're a conservative theologian in terms of grammatical historical. So the culture is always forming the church. It should be forming the church, and we should be thinking deeply about that. So with all that as a background, what is informing me uh, in this moment? And really, it's what's informed me, I would say, for the last 10 years. Uh, I went through a midlife crisis that basically nobody knows. Now everybody listening knows, and you know, but I don't talk about it a lot. My wife and family knows, but for eight years. And, and I didn't even know midlife crisis was a real thing. Right. I, I, when I was a young person, if that came up, oh, that'll never be me. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to, you know, but I, and, and, and Mike, and you read about midlife crisis in men, you don't know when it starts, when it stops. Sometimes it never stops. It can last a week. It can last the rest of your life. You don't know. I very specifically know when a light switch, if you will, it went off and boom, I, there, I was in turmoil inside. And eight years went by and it's like a light switch went off and I was out. It's the craziest thing. 
uh, it almost caught my marriage. If it wasn't for my wife and all everything, okay. And I went through that. And what happened in the beginning of that period being thrown? And of course, there's so many reasons from chemical and biological to your, your environment, the way you were raised. I was born out of wedlock, no dad, you know, there's so many factors that affect each of us individually, right? But for what, in my case, um, up until that point, uh, and I'm saying this was probably 2009 or 10 when I kind of entered in this, this moment and I didn't choose to, it just happened. Okay. But I made a lot of wrong choices early on. And what, what happened? This is all part of my formation because up until that time, I'd been a, a, a vocational pastor from 1984 to say 2009, 2010. So whatever that is, like 25 years, I don't know. And, and I had very dramatically given my life to Jesus coming out as a freshman in college. I'm doing cocaine, drugs, and, and boom, I went, I went night to day. I'm all of a sudden I'm Keith Green. You know, I'm living for Jesus. I'm all over the place, right? So I had this radical shift. I came out of Jesuit Catholicism and in three, four months, I'm at Liberty University playing college baseball at the height at the beginning of moral majority. These massive shifts of, of thought. But what I learned in 2008, 29, 20, and when I went into this and some decisions I made and choices and how I handled that and how I didn't handle it right, all of a sudden I realized I wasn't just saved once. I'm being saved every day. And I don't think I realized that in 2009, 2010. Because if you will, I kind of had, you know, again, I, I came out of that testimony drugs. So now I'm walking with Jesus and everything was like this escalator ride towards, towards my pursuit of holiness. And I never made, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even know how to tell, of course I was sinning, but I wouldn't have known how to tell you that. I would have just gone, yeah, of course I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner, but probably deep inside at some level, I thought I pretty much overcome sin and sure every now and then I might do. But then I came face to face with my own humanity. Yeah. And I realized that I'm being saved every single day of my life. Yeah. But I didn't just get saved once for all. I'm being saved every single day of my life. Every single day, like David, I, I, I remember my sin. I can't get away from it. I know I'm forgiven, you know, and, and God has brought everything through it. But my point is, how am I being formed? Um, I could tell you, oh, I read this book or whatever, you know, and I'm always listening. I'm learning just like everybody. But the major we for the last 12 years now, at least how I'm being formed every day is mindful of my humanity, mm. mindful of my sin, mindful of my humanity and realizing that I am being saved every single day of mm. my life. Thanks be to God for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thank mm-hmm. you for your vulnerability, your honesty, your deep commitment to the church and to the gospel and um, and for all the ways that you are sharing that journey with others so that they too can dig into their deep passion and live that out in ways that make the world a better place. You, you really make a difference, Mark. I appreciate you. Well, thank you guys, both of you as well. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you today on this podcast. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.